Episode of the Adjutant's Lounge. Today I'm joined by um, O.C. Eng, um Neil Pointer of the Royal Horse Engineers, uh, currently deep in darkest Wiltshire. And today, Neil, Neil, we, we're going to talk about something a little bit. It, it's connected with the current affairs in the Ukraine, but it's also got a connection with the Second World War. Absolutely, huge, huge connection. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to spoil this. This is your. This is this is yours. This is your okay. baby. All right. So a little bit of background. I, I want to talk about morale, and the, the reason I want to talk about it is one we've heard a lot of it. We've heard a lot about morale in connection with what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, or in the battle, or the the, the Ukraine battles that are happening. Specifically, perhaps the impact of morale on the Russian soldiers and also on the Ukraine soldiers. So we'll get to that. The other thing I want to bring in is in business today, there's a, a topic about how do we get better engagement along with our employees, our staff, our people. And actually the two subjects I think are really, really closely linked. Now the World War II aspect, as we'll come to, is that there's a British general, um, later Field Marshal, Field Marshal Viscount Slim, who actually laid out some principles or foundations for morale. And there's a story to have all of that. And that's where I'd like to get to where I can actually, what we can do is talk about his foundations of morale and how we can see they're relevant to what's happening in Ukraine now, but also this idea about engagement in business. So whenever I'm talking to us, subject like this i always like starting off with the dictionary because it feels like a good place to start and the oxford dictionary definition is of morale is the confidence enthusiasm and discipline of a person or group at a particular time so they obviously are saying you know you can have poor morale where confidence enthusiasm and discipline are low and the idea here is well what what is it and what slim gets to eventually in the end is what is it that generates that? You know, what generates high morale? So high confidence, high enthusiasm, high discipline in a group. Um, now, just flicking over to modern business, and I said that about engagement, there's a UK government generated website around called engageforsuccess.org. Um, very good site, actually. And, it, and their definition of engagement and it's quite an interesting one, is a workplace a workplace approach resulting in the right conditions for all members of an organization to give of their best each day. Now, if you can, if you compare that to the idea of the morale one from the Oxford English Dictionary, not a million miles away. Um, now, I have a slight challenge with the full definition. The full definition goes on. So give of their best each day, committed to their organization's goals and values, motivated to contribute to organizational success with an enhanced sense of their own well-being. And there's a, an important link in there is that there's a link between their own well-being 
and then what the organization gets back. So we'll sort of circle back around on that. Now, before I say a bit more about who Phil Marshall, then General Slim is or was, let's look at his definition of morale, because I think it's great. So and I'll tell I'll say more about where this came from later. So his definition in his book, Defeat into Victory, goes as follows. It is that intangible force which will move a whole group of people to give their last ounce to achieve something without counting the cost to themselves that makes them feel they are a part of something greater than themselves. Now, I, I can actually, if you want, Ben, I can give you a couple of slides that can go out with this or something like that if there's a PDF or something. I don't know how that works, but, you know, we might be able to do yeah, something. Try. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, because some of those definitions are a bit wordy and it, it's difficult to take them in over this. But I think it he really touched on something there about what is it that gets a whole group of people to give their last ounce to achieve something? What is it that motivates us? Now, let's just take it into the current situation in Ukraine. What is it that is getting those uh, Ukraine armed forces and even irregulars to defend their nation passionately? Now, I, I guess that a lot of people are going, well, that's obvious, but it's finding out that detail. And then how can you develop that? How can you use that? How can you make that happen? So a little bit more perhaps about Field Marshal Viscount Slim. So outside the Ministry of Defence in London, if you're walking up um, Whitehall, there's three statues of three World War II generals. And there's um, Lord Alan Brooke, um, who was Churchill's chief of the Imperial General Staff basically throughout the whole war. And he's in the centre. Um, there's Montgomery. I guess we all know who he is um, on the right as you're looking at the MOD. And then on the left, there's Slim, resplendent in his jungle slouch hat. Now, I can safely say from my experience as a an instructor at Sandhurst, that as far as leadership and a model of a leader is concerned, it is slim that is held in the highest regard in the British Army. And indeed, um, in I think it was 2011, a national survey was carried out as to who um, was the UK's greatest leader, uh, military leader. And after a public debate and voting and everything, it was a tie between um, the Duke of Wellington and Field Marshal Viscount Slim. Not Montgomery. Montgomery didn't make it, in, I don't think, to the final five. Which is kind of interesting, but a different discussion altogether. So we've got this man, Field Marshal Slim, who is highly regarded. Now, how, where did he come from? A little bit of background. So. Uh, born in 1891, son of a commercial tradesman, so not your traditional old school British Army officer, not public school um, educated, never went to university, but incredibly bright. Clearly, he got some decent schooling in his senior school years, had to leave, though, because poverty hit the family or unemployment hit his father. But he somehow got himself into the Bristol uh, University Officer Training Corps. 
and hence in 1914 found himself commissioned at the outbreak of World War One. He was commissioned into the Warwickshire Regiment initially and found himself in Gallipoli on the Gallipoli landings and was wounded twice. Um, and something happened while he was there with the Warwickshires. The unit that was next door to them was the 1st Battalion of the Sixth Gurkha Rifles. Um, now, what actually happened was that because of Slim's um, professionalism, and he was even at that very early stage in his career, he was quite highly regarded. And he was one of the few people who managed to get a conversion onto a commission. Now, he couldn't get a commission into the British Army in terms of the army based in the UK. But what he was able to do was to get a commission into the Indian Army. And coincidentally, into the 1st Battalion, 6th Gurkha Rifles. And he found himself um, on operations on the northwest frontier. Um, grounds that some of our soldiers now would find very familiar or would have done in the last 10, 20 years. And although his career is slow, he progresses steadily and he's highly respected within the Indian Army, so much so that he's sent back as the Indian Army exchange instructor at the British Army Staff College, where he is highly regarded as an instructor. Anyway, cut forward a lot. Um, April 1939 finds him as a 48 year old brigadier commanding the Indian Army Senior Officer School in Balgaon. And considering that his career was probably soon up, um, he didn't see anything else happening for him. But of course, 1939, life changed around the world and we had the momentous events. So what happened is that he was instantly given, or actually the story goes, that he went from the school, presenting himself at Delhi High Command and said, I want to command. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think bearing in mind, this is a man who was injured quite seriously with a collapsed lung in the World War One. You know, his injuries were not lightweight. Um, and it was a bit touch and go at one stage, if you read his, his biography, as to whether he was going to survive. Wow. So this is a man who's already experienced combat, already experienced um, quite serious wounds, looking to go out and command. So anyway, he gets given command of the 10th, uh, 10th Indian Infantry Brigade, which saw him retraining it and eventually going to Eritrea and Ethiopia to fight the Italians. Again, he's wounded. He's shot up by the Italian Air Force in a convoy and gets pierced in his derriere with three rounds of uh, 20 mil ammunition. Um, or something quite, really quite serious. Um, anyway, so that's 1939-40. He recovers from his wounds. And in May 1941, he's given command of the 10th Indian Division and heads off to Iraq, where he's incredibly successful, uh, wins some battles. But March 1942, and this is really where our story starts to bite, he's summoned back to the corps commander and told to report to Delhi. Now he's assuming, and it, it, there's something in Slim around the man's humility, he automatically assumed he'd been sacked. 
he didn't think, oh, I'm about to be promoted. So he departs his division very sadly. Now, on arrival back in Delhi, he is told in some degree of mystery, and he's not told why, that he now needs to fly to Burma to assess the situation with the chief of the general staff, India. While he's in Burma, he's met there by General Alexander, but he's still no clear on his future. And he discusses the issues and chews the fat, but he doesn't know why he's there. On return, he's summoned to Kolkata, where General Wavell, who is now the CNC India, um, just tells him that he's taking command, that Slim is taking command of the newly formed Burma Corps. He's not given, he's not asked, he's told. Um, Slim basically goes, yes. Now, <laughs> this is a man who clearly wanted to be where the action was. Burma was already at this stage turning into a nightmare. Now, I'm not going to go through the full story now because it, the story is told. Um, and if you want the detail, there's there's his book, Defeat into Victory. There's various other books about the Burma campaign. But basically, the British army went into full retreat up the length of Burma. And this concluded with them withdrawing through the hills into India in the middle of the monsoon. Horrendous, absolutely horrendous. You cannot imagine the conditions that they were having to work through. And it is held much to the credit of Slim that the core was in any form of organisation, that people were still in units and that they actually found themselves, they found their way out into Impul um, and into India in any form of organisation whatsoever. And that was in around May 1942. Now, th there's an interesting side story that Slim tells in his book. He said, it's one thing to be cheered by your troops when you leave, when you've led them to victory. He said, it's quite another to be cheered by your troops when you depart, when you've retreated in defeat. And that's what happened to him. Such was his reputation already that he was building as a leader that his soldiers already knew that they hadn't made it back without, they wouldn't have made it back without him, without his influence. So we've got someone here who clearly has something very special about them as a leader. Indeed, later on, his nickname was Uncle Bill amongst the British troops. That's what he was called. Um, but already we're seeing that there's something special. Um, 42 to 43, he was given command of 15 Corps. The Burma Corps was disbanded. He was given command of 15 Corps. And there was some real politics going on, which I'm not going to go into now. But if you read into it, someone tried to sack him. They didn't get Slim didn't get sacked. They did. <laughs> and Slim basically went from commanding 15 Corps, where he started to formulate some of his ideas. But then in October 43, he was promoted to be the commander of the newly formed 14th Army. This was, So he's gone. So let's just put this into perspective. He goes from a brigadier in 1939. By 1943, he's gone through three ranks and he's a full general. 
even <laughs> if only acting. Um, so you've got someone who is very highly thought of. And remember his background. This is a this is a young man who actually an important part of this is that when he was trying to earn some money before the First World War, he trained as a teacher and the schools he was teaching in were in the slums of Birmingham. And I think he learned something about working with the people from those backgrounds, about what got him respected, about how to talk to them. This is someone who very clearly later on knew how to communicate to soldiers. And he really understood soldiers. And indeed, there's some comments that this is an incredible, incredibly capable officer, but with the heart of a soldier. And he really got what was important to soldiers. So let's let's cut to 1943. He's realised and he's given the task of taking the 14th Army back into Burma. So having withdrawn the corps out in 42, in 43, he's given the task of going back in. Now, just before we get to what he did, let's summarise what the overall achievement was. He took the army back into Burma and through 44-45, utterly defeated the Japanese army and including uh, the biggest single defeat the Japanese suffered in any land battle at Impul and Kohuma. Now, there was then the pursuit with the Battle of the Irrawaddy and the incredible manoeuvre battle that he fought around Mictala, um, which resulted in the routing and the final pursuit down to Rangoon. Now, what's incredible here is that Slim took in, a, when he basically did the pursuit down to the Irrawaddy, everything was restricted by logistics. And one of his key things that he started was air, air supply. He realised he could only support six and a half divisions into Burma once he went on the pursuit. At one stage, he was fighting seven divisions. He was facing off about seven divisions. Now, this goes against all military logic. No, normal military ratios, you've got to have three to one. Well, he at one stage was actually numerically, in terms of units, numerically inferior. And he won. You know, he didn't just, and it wasn't just a casual win, it was a big win. And what he achieved, and again, we're not going to go into the, the tactics and everything, but there was some amazing moments. But just to give you an, a flavour of the man, and it's one of the best little vignettes about him, I think, in Defeat into Victory, he talks about air supply. <coughs> Excuse me. And the fact that if any one of his divisions went on to air supply, sorry, if any of his divisions went on to half rations, because there were some times when ammunition and logistics just didn't work, it, you know, those had to take priority and divisions had to be put onto half rations. If any one of his divisions was on half rations, his army headquarters went on to half rations. Because he couldn't countenance giving that order and still having full rations himself. That was just beyond his, he, he couldn't bring himself to do that. And that I think speaks volumes 
to where this man's soul and where his heart was and his understanding. What he does make the very clever aside is, and with that comment is he goes, it also, of course, encouraged my hungry young staff officers to solve the problem. <laughs> but this is the kind of thinking and the kind of soul this man had. And it's very clear through all of his appointments, through all of his work. And, and it's almost impossible. I've, I've literally gone out and tried to find something bad written about him. You can't find I can't find anything. Now, I'm sure he upset people. I'm sure there were some people. It's very clear, you know, two people tried to sack him, but basically they were jealous. Um, you, you know, everybody thought incredibly highly of him. I don't think he engaged in politics. He just did his job. He, he just tried to be a good soldier and do his job. And he did it as well as he could. But his soul was with his words with the soul with with the soldiers that he was commanding. There's no doubt about it. So let's turn our attention to what he did around morale. Now, I, I said October 43, um, he's just been um, made the commander of the newly formed or newly retitled 14th Army. And he sat in his office in Barakpur, which is near Kolk in the north part of Kolkata. And he's immediately faced with three huge issues. And in his book, he lays these out very clearly. Um, the first was supply, the second was health, and the third was morale. Now, supply was all about, and it's very interesting, he talks about the communications lines, 700 miles, you know, the, the army was sat at the end of a 700 mile logistics chain, the monsoon, all the complexities that he was facing. Also, 14th Army was the lowest priority of any of the armies. Um, you know, lots of great things ha happening in Africa and around Sicily. Um, the priority was the defeat of Hitler in Europe. He knew this. Um, hence where the Forgotten Army title came from. They were at the bottom of every supply list. He faced that. Huge issues around health. Um, Areas of Burma or um, are so racked with jungle diseases. It's a, he says it's basically it's possibly the worst place you could pick to fight in the world. Um, they were losing. I forget the exact element. It was some or exact ratio. It was something like they were losing 120 cases to medical for every one battle casualty. So it's huge, huge issues. Um, so he, he took this one on in typical style. He educated himself. He got people involved who knew about these things. Right. How do we deal with these matters? He was the first person who seriously suggested that we don't treat casualties. We don't take all casualties to the rear. He created forward treatment stations so that soldiers could stay with their unit or as close to their unit as possible to be treated. Um, he, he looked for nurses to go forward, volunteer nurses out of the hospitals to go forward to do the treatment. Um, he's, I think his greatest feat, though, was um, this. I, I, I'll get the pronunciation of this one, but I think the drug was called meprokine, um, which was a new drug against malaria. And of course, all the, the 
normal soldier rumors went round about oh it'll make you sterile you know make you impotent turn you <laughs> turn you yellow um and what he basically did was said that it was the responsibility of all COs to make sure that everyone took them their drugs um he said it took me sacking two unit commanders when i did on spot inspections before everyone got the message you know and their illness ratios dropped hugely so then he came to morale and he realized that basically there was none of that fighting spirit and if we get back to that definition that he came up with you know intangible force which will move a whole group of men to give their last ounce there wasn't any um and the challenges to that were huge there were still soldiers there who'd been in the retreat from burma they'd recently been defeated in arakan in a campaign which he'd initially set up but then he got taken out because he wasn't allowed to command it because the general above him got jealous anyway that's a different story that turned into a disaster because they used the wrong tactics there were the health issues there were the supply issues there was the whole thing about the forgotten army but the biggest thing was the japanese army had got this reputation that they were unbeatable they were somehow myth mystical in the jungle you know the jungle was a complete anathema to the british and indian soldier so what slim knew he had to do was to change all of that to somehow overcome that because before they did that he 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 wouldn't stand a chance so he laid out what he called his foundations for morale and basically there's three key pillars here now he called them spiritual intellectual and material and they're in a very specific order now i'll talk through each of them so we've got the spiritual now i think today in today's parlance we would call this emotional so what he believed is you had to have something that people appealed to people's spirits or their emotions now he he broke this into four parts first of all that there was a great and noble objective now in in slim's view that's what the british army the indian army had at that time they were the defenders they were the people who were fighting against this then barbaric army that had treated its prisoners horrifically that was basically behaving in a in a awful way and so they had the great and noble objective now th that wasn't enough though the achievement of that objective had to be vital there had to be a reason why it was important and they knew that if they didn't then india would be overrun you know if we don't win this if we don't defeat this then this is bad there has to be an active and aggressive plan to achieve that objective so it's not all we'll wait and see it's we're going to do this about it and then and this i think was really one of his master strokes that everybody knew that what they did was vitally important and contributed directly towards the goal now he he makes the case in his book he said obviously the frontline soldiers knew that they were, it was very clear what they were doing if we go back to one of his other problems which was supply his real issues around morale 
were in the rear areas where the stories got back, where the bogeyman stories about the Japanese got back into where all the rumours were circulating. And he said, and all of, of course, all of our reinforcements came through this area. And they were infected with bad morale before they even got to the front line. She said, so we had to start at the back. Now, he tells the story um, in the book about, you know, it's the three men running a petrol station on the supply line. You know, that their job, if they, you know, was vital to keep everything running. Um, and if they didn't, they were, in, you know, then supplies would break down and things wouldn't get to the front that were needed for an attack. So, and he worked on this, people understanding what was going on and why they were important. He toured units as much as he could. And indeed, it, you know, if you read the biographical works about him, this was one of the things that was most appreciated by soldiers. And there wasn't grand staging. You know, it was a, it was a man walking out from a vehicle and just saying, you know, just gather around guys in a very plain voice and talking to them like soldiers. And telling them how it was and why they were doing what they were doing and what was going on and the fact that he was hacked off, that he couldn't get them the better rations. But he's trying really hard. And uh, we'll come on to this, but basically communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, get out there, tell the story, tell it again, tell it again, tell it again. Everybody tell the story. Why are we doing this and why is what you're doing important? So this is this emo spiritual or, as I would now put it, emotional core. Then he realized that wasn't enough. There had to be an intellectual uh, strength to this or robustness. So when you told them there was a plan, soldiers had to be able to believe that the plan was possible. Now, here comes the bit about the Japanese bogeyman. At the beginning, there's no way that that would have stood. However, he went on, Slim was a huge training fan. And he made them train and they trained in the jungle and they trained and trained and trained. His whole headquarters, everybody, when he was, and, and there's a lovely quote about his um, Gurkha orderly, that everybody in the headquarters had to be proficient in three weapons. Everybody, including himself. Everybody was out on the ranges. Everybody able to had, had to be jungle fit. Everybody had to be able to move. Clerks, cooks, didn't matter who you were. Everyone had to be capable of patrolling. And there's a lovely story about his Gurkha orderly going, sir, I have to go on the range? <laughs> yes, you have to go on the range. <laughs> And he was only apparently mollified when he was made an instructor. <laughs> you know, um, and then, OK, some pride has been restored. You know, I'm an infantryman. Why? Um, but that was his mentality. We train. And then what he started to do was just forward units started aggressively patrolling. So and with success. So then the stories start to come back about. You know, um, Corporal Garung with his creeping up with his cookery and look at the head he brought back. You know, literally, literally, those are the stories. Then, um, you know, 
that he'd start to do small aggressive actions and he'd use a brigade to take out a company post. Now, there's another comment. You know, he said, you know, I had some senior people visit and say, well, isn't that a bit of a steam hammer to crack a nut? And he said, well, to be honest, if I've got a steam hammer around, it's a very efficient way of cracking a nut. Um, but what he was doing was starting to establish a reputation of success and that the Japanese army could be defeated and that the jungle wasn't our enemy. It was our friend. And he started to establish a belief, an intellectual belief that the Japanese could be beaten so that the plans could work. And this was by aggressive, highly um, effective training and then gradually establishing stories and a reputation of success and tactics and tactics that people could believe in. Um, there was this big thing, especially on the withdrawal on the on, on the fight out of Burma and or the retreat out of Burma, that the Japanese would use a roadblock around the back of you, block you. And then, of course, you've got to try and fight your way out. Well, he said, no, 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 no. It's the Japanese who are now surrounded because they've put a roadblock around themselves. So you have to eat, you know, and it was a case of reversing the mentality. And I think I mentioned the air supply already. This mentality that if you were cut off, we will supply you by air. Now, this came into huge play at the Battle of Impul and Kahuma where there's a wonderful story of um, a gunner regiment being seen to be fi firing over open sites, you know, at ranges of 600 yards. And, you know, signal going down, are you OK? You know, do you need anything? We're OK, but send 600 bayonets. <laughs> and the story goes, the bayonets were sent and used. Wow. But there was this sense of, no, no, OK, that's fine. We're, we're not surrounded. You're the ones who are cut off. We're being supplied. You're the ones in trouble. And so there, the, he started to generate this intellectual belief. No, no, this can work. We can do this. So he's got the moral. He's got that spiritual emotional pillar. He's now got the intellectual piece. So the object, the objective can be attained. The organization is efficient. Hey, look at those supplies coming in. Um, there's a wonderful story that when they were setting up the air supply routes, I think in, um, it doesn't matter where it was, but Al Snelling, who is his logistics, uh, chief logistics officer, um, and Slim says, I just wondered if it would be a good idea to put a, um, you know, the odd case of rum in every sort of 10th or 15th drop. And apparently Al Snelling looked at him very witheringly and said, sir, I have already ordered that a case of rum is put in every drop. So <laughs> we, um, and, and Slim desc describes it as the withering tone of the professional talking to the amateur. Um, but this was so that you knew the soldiers would go out and get the drops. <laughs> uh, brilliant yeah but but this was what they started to establish um so there was this real belief 
that the organization was efficient, it would work. And also that the leadership must generate confidence and be shown to not throw away people's lives unnecessarily. So that, you know, if something was asked of them, they knew it was needed. That it wasn't just some cavalier thing that was being asked of them. So there's these, so you've got the emotional, you've got the intellectual. And then finally, there's the material or physical. So your ordinary soldier gets a fair deal from the commanders in the army, you know. And I think this comes back to that point where you hear Slim going, no, I need to go on to half rations as well. So there's the fair deal. You know, I'm not sitting there in my army headquarters luxuriating. If if you're on half rations, I'm on half rations, you know, and then, you know, imagine being able to go out and say that to your soldiers or not even say it, but go, I know what it's like to be on half rations because that's where my headquarters is right now. Oh, right. OK, <laughs> you know, that's a very different perspective you've suddenly got on your on your army commander. When he's coming forward to talk to you. Um. Very interestingly, just at even that officer command level, he says in how he gave orders, he always, whenever possible, went forward to his core commanders to give these orders. He didn't make them come back to him. He went forward. He said, what, you know, that's the most efficient way of doing it. And they're the ones who need it fast, not me. You know, so he's thinking about his soldiers, even his senior officers. Um, so fair deal. Also, the soldiers have the correct tools for the job wherever possible. So wherever we can, we make sure we're giving them the best we can in order to do the job. And then living and working conditions <laughs> must be as good as they possibly can be. Um, so even if they are in the middle of the jungle or whatever. Soldiers believe and can see that their commanders, their officers, their people are trying to make things as good as possible. So he and then and, and this is all written down and he uh, I, I'll just read a little bit from his book there. Um, so where is it? So when I took command, I sat quietly down to work out this business of morale. I came to certain conclusions based not on any theory that I had studied, but on some experience and a good deal of hard thinking. It was on these conclusions that I set out consciously to raise the fighting spirit of my army. So this was a man who's been through all he's been injured three times, been wounded three times. He's led the withdrawal out of um, Burma. He's someone's tried to sack him once. And yet what he does is and there's an intellectual side to him very clearly. He literally sits down in his office. And starts writing these notes about what morale is and what he needs to do about it. And this is what he came up with. And it's absolutely, you know, I. Just to equate it across now, I use this now in my job as a consultant. I teach these foundations of morale into companies now because they still stand the test. They, they absolutely, with some slight adjustments, obviously, to take the military side out of it. 
they they still absolutely stand the test of time. And this is 1943, you know, October, November 43, in the middle of a world war. And he comes out with this absolute gem of thinking. It's, as, I, as I'm listening, I, I'm sort of, I, I'm in awe, actually. Yeah. I, and I can't help but be, I'm, I'm not one I'm given to hero worshipping um, at all. But having, having been in, in that sort of environment, I, I'm, I have that experience of, of how hard it is to operate. Yeah. So, and as you, you know, as you sort of said, the the, the, the retreat, um, you know, initial retreat during monsoon season. Yeah. Having experienced monsoon and worked in it, that is phenomenal. And and you know, listener, uh, for those of you who are who aren't really aware of what a monsoon is, it's very hard to describe. But perhaps the best way that I could use to describe it is, imagine you're outside, and one minute it's fine, the next minute you have a power shower. And that power shower then lasts for about two, three weeks. Yeah. That's roughly a month. Yeah. And on top of that, you've got you, you know, there's a whole gamut of things going on. Uniforms are rotting because of the the, yeah. the, the continuous heat, because of the, you know, you, you get the sores, you get dysentery. That mm -hmm. it, it is absolute hell on earth. And I, I think, you know, people to, I think it was, uh, it, it was I can't remember who it was who turned the, the phrase uh, the, the green hell. Um mm. it, yeah, but but it was, and so I I can see how um, having to challenge the bad morale that would very easily go with that was an absolute uphill struggle. But he but he, he was right to do it. It is it, you know he attacked the rear areas first, and and that is observational powers that not every commander has because they're they're they're, they're and understandably so in some respects, because their their focus is on the front. It is not the rear area. It is literally on the front. Well, I think what Slim grasps very quickly, and when you read his book, and so I'm just going to flip back to this first piece again. You know, um, so again, this is a quote from it. Immediately on taking over, I found myself confronted by three major anxieties, supply, health and morale. And it's interesting. He's not going, how am I going to defeat the enemy? He's not going tactics. He's not going straight for the training of the soldiers. His first one is supply. So this is a soldier who got straight away that this was, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. You know, and the, the next paragraph is supply was, of course, largely a matter of communications. The 14th Army was deployed on a 700-mile front from the Chinese frontier to the Bay of Bengal. Um, you know, and then when he talks about it, he describes, and there's one part in the book where it obviously they fight through uh, the monsoon in 44, and in 45, and it's actually 45 that prevents him from winning slightly and being the first to Rangoon. But in 44, they, he describes when they are in pursuit because the Battle of Impul and Kahuma happens in March, April 44. Monsoon is, is in May, if my memory serves me. Um, so the pursuit phase of the when the Japanese, when they were utterly defeated at Impul, 
and they had made the mistake mate and here's an interesting um reference point of assuming that the british would collapse and they'd be able to use their stores captured food fuel etc when the british didn't collapse of course the japanese were now on a time scale because they had no logistics trend they'd assumed that the british would collapse and that they would get the stores so what happened was that the british stood firm they went in these into these boxes into these ad administrative boxes and they'd now believed that they would get air supply which they did um and they survived so the japanese now are start literally starving they ran out of food they ran out of water they ran out of ammunition they did not have the logistics in place this was slim's advantage what he did was he fought his first major battle of um, 44 as a defensive battle on his territory where he prepared where he knew they were coming what he didn't there's a slight aside there he didn't know they were going for Kohama which took him by complete surprise um and he does admit that and that was very touch and go at one stage but the morale was such now and this is the key and this is where the morale factor comes in the morale was such that it was basically if i remember rightly a logistics force at Kohama that stood firm they were literally and there's one bit where he says the governor's uh, tennis court was was no man's land one side was one was one side one side was the other and they were lobbing grenades back and forwards across the tennis court uh, at one another but such was the morale now such was the transformation that logistics units were standing firm and fighting and winning and holding their ground. Then, of course, the Japanese collapsed. They withdraw in complete disarray. They're now with retreating in an unstructured, unplanned retreat in the monsoon. Slim now goes on the offensive on the pursuit. And there's one bit I'm sure he talks about it taking a company of infantrymen. I want to say six hours to move two casualties two stretcher cases a mile because the conditions were so bad it wasn't just the wet and you're absolutely right about the intensity of the monsoon but the geography of burma in the north is its razor back its razor edge hill lines so you're up and down valley lines all the time but what he got, what he created was an army that was now. So we've gone from this army where morale is absolutely through the floor in 42 to an army now in 44 that absolutely believes in itself, that absolutely has the faith in the in the aim, the plan, the people running the plan, and that that plan is, will be executed well, and they will be treated as well as they can be. It's an absolute masterstroke, even if you stop there, notwithstanding his tactics that he uses later on, on the Irrawaddy crossing. But his calmness, his ability to talk and communicate with soldiers, it's just outstanding. You, you, you know, you, as I said, you, I've tried to find 
some text that goes, well, you know, he wasn't very good. <laughs> there isn't one. There isn't one anywhere about this man. He's quite, quite outstanding. It, it is really ex extraordinary because the, 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 one of the points you made was about sort of the Forgotten Army, the 14th mm. being the Forgotten Army. Um, and they truly were, weren't they? And when yeah. you look at what Slim achieved, you know, holding a front of 700 miles with, I mean, how, how big was the 14th? Well, I mean, the 14th, the 14th Army at that stage was probably, I think I'm saying it's about 60 to about 60 to 80,000 at that point. But it was a very disrupted front because of the geography. Yeah. Um, so you had the Arakan um, Peninsula which is one side, I think, of the Lomas Hills. And then you cross over into Burma um, proper, as it was. Um, and so it's very broken up. Um, and he had a core in the Arakan, which fortunately then, as uh, the, uh, the Battle of Impul and uh, Kahuma concluded, uh, the, where 15, and 15 Corps were in the Arakan, he, 15 Corps was taken off him and he was allowed to focus on the Northern India front, as would be said. And he was then allowed basically to fight his battle. But of course, all of this, by the way, and of course, what we haven't mentioned is his need to cooperate with Vinegar Joe Stilwell, the American general running the Chinese army in the north of Burma. Who Vin and Vinegar Joe hating every British limey officer passionately, but getting on with Slim. And there's something here again about Slim's ability to communicate, to build relationships with soldiers, to build. And you know, Vinegar Joe didn't get his name because he went well with chips. Um, you know, he was an acerbic character very clearly in all the um, literature about him. Um, but somehow Slim got on with him and had to, you know, he, he had that relationship to work with. Um, Slim was, uh, I think, at the very simplest way of describing, and this is just my impression of him through reading everything, he was an extraordinary soldier who all he cared about was being a damn good soldier and the rest of all the politics and everything else could go to hell. He just wanted to do the very best job he could. And he happened to be incredibly talented, not just as a tactician, but also as a leader of people. It's very clear the respect levels that he was held in by 14th Army is huge as a leader, as a person. It, it's, it's also interesting, I mean, and, and it's one thing, I, I don't know if there's been, much has been made of him, you know, but regarding his character, because he was a West Countryman as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a Bristolian. Yeah, Bristolian, so... Sorry, go on. No, 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 go on. Yeah, and... Um, um, Men from the West Country are, are and ladies, you know, those from the West Country are always sort of very personable. You know, if you, say, yeah. you look at people like Hardy, um, 
they're they're gregarious by nature, aren't they? Yeah. I imagine that helped immensely. Well, I think his experiences, you know, humble, you know, relatively humble backgrounds, teaching in poverty-stricken areas, gaining that insight into where and the background that a lot of the soldiers and you know he's indian soldiers going back you know let's not, not forget this very um cross-cultured army he had indians from every sect um he had east africans west africans australasians you know all of this so but being able to relate to those people from those very poor backgrounds that some of them would have come from and engaging with them as a person. And I think that was his masterstroke. And that tells us an awful lot. Uh, and I hope you listen to that. The, the, those, you know, when you're in a command position, you don't have to be standoffish. And uh, being personable is actually far more effective than being, like you say, like the, 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 the counter was Vinnie Joe Stilwell. Yeah, um, who w- was incredibly acerbic, and but also, I think that very perhaps traditional view of an army officer at that stage of a British army officer, perhaps our greatest contrast would be General Alexander. You know, or Mountbatten. Now, Mountbatten managed to overcome it some way, born of royalty, public school, accelerated promotion, all of those things. Now, incredibly. Slim forms an, an amazing relationship with Mountbatten as well. Slim just had this ability to form relationships because I think he was just a professional. <laughs> All he wanted to be was a bloody good soldier and do his job as well as he could. And it comes over a lot in what he wrote. But that, that humility, <clears throat> the fact that he, in his book, he there, there are very clearly areas where he takes the blame for something that wasn't his fault. Yeah. Um, and also he readily accepts his own failings when he made poor decisions. You know, and he says, I, you know, I misjudged this and it was my fault. Now, of course, it's very easy to do that, perhaps when you've been the winner afterwards. But at no point does he crow about things apart from absolutely his passionate determination to defeat the japanese uh, and and that that comes across very clearly the the lack of that the the appalling behavior of that japanese army of the japanese army of the time was clearly a huge huge motivator to slim he brooked no um shilly shallying on that in fact one of his things at the end macarthur when it came to the surrender decreed that no japanese officer should surrender their sword because it might lead to uh, it, it might lead to problems slim completely disregarded this and ordered that all japanese officers should their should surrender their swords publicly in front of their men that their authority was broken and he, you know, he says uh, the um, sword of the Japanese officer or the Japanese general commanding Burma still hangs above my fireplace now. 
So what was very clear, there was this very driven passion in terms of the great and noble objective, to use his own words, was the the utter defeat of the Japanese army in every way. That, that comes through just in spades throughout. And that's a reflection, like you say, of his desire to be the perfect soldier almost, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it, and I think, you know, the, the fact that he, you know, there's one bit where he, he talks about I, I was. I'm, so when he was um, hauled out of his divisional command in Iraq and taken back and he's sent on this um, trip into Burma, not knowing, he says, I, you know, well, Sorry, it's when he was pulled out of his divisional command and he says to his corps commander, I don't want to go. And his corps commander says, a good soldier does as he's told. <laughs> and then when Slim is going around on this trip around Burma that he's got no idea why he is, he says, I just decided to be a good soldier and keep quiet. <laughs> but I think it just comes through, you know, all he tried to do even when he was under threat of being sacked, was, oh, okay, you want me to do this now, I'll do it as well as I can. Uh, very straightforward man is what comes out. Um, of course, his last real public role was Governor General of Australia. Um, and apparently the Australians loved him. And you can kind of see why you know he was straight talking and spoke from the heart and could probably relate to a lot of what the australian outback people were doing you know that's interesting yeah yeah you know i and again in his biography in the biography in the in the authorized biography about him that comes over you know that he was truly loved as a, as a governor um so Anyway, this really great man. And so anyway, to sort of full circle this, I think it's, I don't want to draw any conclusions about what's happening in Ukraine now. Because I don't have all the right information and it would be absolutely preposterous of me to do so. But there has been a lot of discussion about the comparative morale of the Ukraine soldiers and population generally and the Russian soldiers. Now, Excuse me, there's one contrast I can give. I, I, I just put this in very simple terms. Imagine being a potential conscript or even just someone who's joined the Russian army. And one day before the attack, you think you're on exercise in Belarus or Western Russia. And just the day before you're told you're going to attack Ukraine. So you give up all your blank ammunition, you take live ammunition. Suddenly there's no preparation. You go, what? Uh, what? Why are we attacking Ukraine? Because they're Nazis, because there's a Nazi government. Well, we're not attacking. We're going to go and liberate them. OK, because there's a, um, a fascist government in control in Ukraine, which is the stories we're getting back. OK. All right, all right, okay. So I'm a bit nervous. Blame me. You know, you, okay, right. What you've got to imagine, soldiers, they talk. Also, there's a lot being made 
that not much investment has gone into the training of sergeants. Now, in the British Army, of course, we have this thinking that, well, the sergeants are the backbone of the army. You know, absolutely. We train that at Sandhurst. What's the relationship you're shown at Sandhurst is you have a captain and a colour sergeant together who are your instructors. You know, you meet this mythical English sergeant straight away. So, they, you know, they, the backbone of the army, the NCOs, right, that's not the case in the Russian army by the sounds of things. So what you haven't got is that low level leadership at platoon troop company level that's really strong. You haven't got that discipline, potentially. So you've got very scared, nervous soldiers. They talk. Okay, soldiers talk. You then advance into Ukraine. And what do you meet? Right, now let's flick onto the other side. You meet an impassioned, emboldened army with moral high ground defending its country against attack a leader who is publicly out there talking to the world, visible in his flak jacket in Kiev. Not, I'm not going anywhere. That marvellous quote, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Um, so if you go back now to Slim's model, what have we got? Who's got the emotional higher ground? Who's got the great and noble objective here? So you've got the Russian soldier who comes across suddenly. Why are they fighting us? What, what's going on? We, we thought we were on a rescue mission. We thought we were going to be welcomed with open arms. Now, let's imagine I've got to climb out the back of my BMP two or three or my BTR troop carrier and attack. Now, let me tell you, to get out the back and charge and manoeuvre against a well-organised defence, your morale's got to be pretty good, or else you go to ground fast. So you meet an impassioned defender who absolutely believes in what they are doing. I wonder how quickly morale starts to fail when you're greeted by mass-produced Molotov cocktails around every corner. Um, and suddenly your logistics aren't working. Suddenly we're not getting fuel. We're getting Ukrainians turn up and offer to tow us back to the border. I mean, we've seen all those wonderful videos, noticing that those are dying out because life's getting a bit more serious now. But I wonder what the levels of morale are like on both sides. My only conjecture, we've seen a shift and it's been reported by one reliable source that the Russians have gone into hasty defence on a lot of their fronts. Why? Because they're not making progress. OK, and now we see them going to artillery, very heavy, murderous, artillery bombardment of towns easier to do when your morale's low easier to do when you're suddenly up against it and you can't make progress that's my only conjecture that i'll make on it i can't prove that but it's a surmise they're not making the pro why have they gone into hasty defense why have they started to dig in apparently um 
first reported use of minefields by the Russians. Minefields are inherently defensive, whether you're just using it temporarily for flank protection or whatever. Sorry, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm an ex-Royal Engineer, so I know a little bit about minefields. Um, you, you, you use minefields for protection, temporary or not. It's a defensive, it's a defensive thing that you're doing. Or to canalize it, but you, you can use them to canalize the enemy into a, a path, but you're basically using it to protect yourself in some way. It's an obstacle to movement. Um, that's interesting that they've started using minefields. That's limiting also, of course, a minefield is, is two edged. It means you can't maneuver through that area either. Um, so it's kind of interesting what we're seeing around morale and i wonder what's going on there you know how long were they how long were the russian forces expecting to be there were they given the uh, the old it'll be a 10 it's 10 day operation and then we'll be home for tea and medals well it's now four weeks i think or we we at three weeks plus for coming into the fourth week yeah we're i think day 22 23 now 2023 yeah Yes. Um, okay, three weeks plus, and the maps aren't moving right now. Um, it's all gone very static. We're seeing, okay, so something else just occurred to me. The senior officer casualties. Mm. Why? Okay, now if junior level leadership is failing, what's going to have to happen is that the senior level leadership have got to go forward. I think we've seen, is it three or four regimental commanders? So that's our equivalent of a brigadier. I think we've seen four two-star commanders. So those yep. are divisional commanders. I think I saw a report of a three-star. Wow, really? So that would be that, that would be their army commander, or we'd put it a corps commander. Yeah, corps commander. Um, so I think I saw the, the Ukrainians saying yesterday that they killed a three-star. Now, I, so here's another indicator. We're seeing minefields. We're seeing the maps not moving much. We're seeing the use of artillery rather than intensive um, attacks on using uh, infantry and tanks. We're seeing senior level commanders having to go forward and getting killed. This to me is, you, we're starting to see a pattern here. Logistics not working. Now, that could be the Ukrainians being very, very good at blocking the advance and then hooking <laughs> the logistics, which is a great technique if you can do it. Um, the pattern to me looks like morale ain't great with the Russian army right now. It's, uh, I, there, there are a lot of indicators, aren't there? Yeah, there's the, a lot uh, of possible indicators. Yeah, that you without like saying without going in and, and, and sort of getting into the world of conjecture and, and everything else and, and then showing stuff that perhaps we shouldn't be. Um yeah, they're not having a good war. Um it's interesting. part of, part of me it, I am surprised that it's taken them this long to get to where they are in terms of establishing defensive uh positions. Um but then part of me isn't. Uh, I, I think they've completely overestimated <laughs> the other one, what they're up against. Well, again, if you go back to 
the motivational level or the morale level. You know, the, if you, you think about the Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian people, and it's not just their army, it's the people. They're fighting. There's, there's a concept that's talked about in the armed forces and in war studies about total war and, um, oh, sorry, brain, my brain's gone dead. Um, so, What's we, yeah, we, we, with, with the total war, this, this is this sort of war, isn't it, against yeah. both military and, and, and the, you know. Yeah, the it's the total mobilisation, total total war, yeah. the idea, limited war, sorry, brain switched back on again. So you've got limited war or total war. Very clearly, Russia was coming into this, what we think, initially, fighting a limited war. They've got limited objectives to achieve. To the Ukrainians, this is total war. This is about the survival of their culture, the survival of their people, the survival of their country. So if you go back to that just initial, who's got the great and noble objective? Who's got the, the objective that's achievement must be vital? Who, who knows that their plan must be active and aggressive? You know, who knows what they must do? They that everything they do is important and contributes to the goal. You know, if you go down Slim's just the four parts of the emotional, spiritual pillar of morale, it's all with the Ukraine. It's all with the Ukrainians, and I can just know <clears throat> the impact of that on soldiers can be huge both positive on the Ukraine side, but also the impact on the Russian soldiers. Why am I here? Why are we doing this? Aren't the Ukrainians our brothers? Aren't you know our brothers and sisters? No. And I I was when I was when we were speaking last week, soldiers have a wonderful way, he says from experience, of if they don't want to do something, it's amazing how quickly something stops working. You know, it, it, and there was that one video that we saw last week of six or eight, and it says basically half a company of tanks all bogged in, and it didn't make any sense to me. And it was like there wasn't any damage. Didn't look. Didn't look like they'd been ambushed. Didn't look like they'd been all forced off the road. And I just wondered, what if they just drove off the road and bogged their tanks? Because I, I can promise you, if they didn't want to do it, if they didn't want to do what they were doing, one very hell, it's one hell of a fast way of just not being able to do anything. And again, it's another in, it's another potential indicator. Because, you know, as I say, if soldiers are scared, if they don't want to be somewhere that, where they are, they're humans at the end of the day. They're not they're not monsters. They're human beings, and soldiers can be very good at finding ways of not doing what they are told to do. It's an inter it's just an interest, it, it, it's an interesting, you know, I'm, I'm drifting into Blackadder with the old uh, <laughs> communication problem. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you know, it, and one doesn't want to make light of the situation at all. But, you know, um, no, sorry, couldn't hear that order, sir. It, it it's it, it's very interesting, you know, really with this sort of self sabotaging. Um, 
I mean, it used to happen a lot in the factories, didn't it, as well? Mm. Um, and uh, like you said, there's an awful lot of human nature there. I think people discount because it's the military, and then there is this expectation that the military are a sort of acting as automatons or somehow bereft of the human behaviours, which which everyone else lives by, and they're clearly not. Um, no. And, and and again, it is interesting that, especially sort of around the midway of the second week, there was a, there was a picture of um, Russian soldiers traipsing back to their lines. Clearly, they'd abandoned the vehicles. People mm. caught just going home. You know, I, I think you know. I, I don't know whether we'll see more of that, um, and I don't know how how the the Russian military will respond to that. Um, it, it's very difficult to know. And what's not what's what is noticeable about the coverage now is we're getting less videos coming through. We're not getting those very cheerful, like not cheerful. That's a wrong term. Um, but but humorous videos from the Ukraine side of the tractors towing away tanks. You know that that's all dried up now. Yeah. But what we are still seeing is the videos of their uh, air missions with their drones hitting Russian convoys. You know, we are still seeing the odd one of those. I think things have got more intense, but I wonder who's got the best morale right now. I would imagine it's still within, the, uh, still the, the morale remains, the Ukrainians remain in, in the upper hand. But as the, the Russians continue to sort of reliance on the use of the God of War, yeah. How well, how, and, and there is this impact on civilian populations, especially what's in light of what's going on with Mariupol um, and the refusal to surrender and stand down there, whether there will be some sort of levelling. Um, because, again, this goes back to, you know, the material, um, the sort of material, spiritual, sort of emotional yeah. um, elements of, of, of slim sort of pilots. And when you're applying it to a civilian population that is tired and scared, you're, you're on a very, th there is a very thin thread. Mm. Of, of grasping of, of, of what's going on around them. I, so, I wonder what it might do, though, for the determination of the military, if you know that's happening to your civilian population. I, I think it, it, it will harden attitudes. Yeah. And, and I think it could, this could see a more dangerous phase of operations being undertaken. It will be interesting to see, because, again, <clears throat> like you say, that there is this sort of slowing down of information coming out, visual and otherwise. And maybe it's because they're realising that by sharing the amount of information, they're losing the the edge in terms of the strategic and tactical um, sort of situations around the country, and they're reining it in at this point. So it'd be interesting to see how what what the Ukrainians do in mm. the next ten days. Um, yeah. You know, they're still getting their foreign fighters. These guys are getting organised very rapidly. Um, and, it, 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 and again, the other thing is, you know, the Russians are doing likewise. Whether this is true or not, whether the, the introduction of Syrian and Libyan mercenaries will help them. I th You know, like the Chechens. The Chechens haven't lasted terribly long. They haven't done terribly well. The Syrians, I don't know how many they've got. And the Libyans, well, you know, it, it's... I can see why they're, they're getting the Libyans in, but will the Libyans 
come over in the numbers that he's expecting? I probably doubt it. It it I, I you know I don't want to get drawn into those areas. Then there are areas that I know nothing about. Um, I think what will be important is the West keeping up the logistics supply. If we come down to are we being supported? Are we getting what we need to defend our country? If there is arms and ammunition flowing. And of course, there are the other practicalities. You know, we're seeing people, uh, you know, medical supplies. You know, one of the key things for any soldier um, is knowing that there is the capacity that if they are injured, they will they stand a chance of surviving. Hmm. You know, that's a key part of morale for soldiers, uh, that there is an organisation that will try. I can't say can't guarantee it, but we'll try to get them medical treatment as fast as possible. Yeah, you know, all all the what was the figure in from the Falklands War that if someone made it onto the operating table within was it an hour? It's a golden hour, isn't it? The oh. figure, that's it. The, yeah. the golden hour. So if they made if they were on the operating table within an hour, the, the chances of survival goes astronomically higher. Uh, you know, it's logarithmically different. I think. So you know, medical supplies. Are we getting jeeps through, or or Land Cruisers, or you know, transport? Uh, are we getting Stinger? Are we getting Javelin? Are we getting you know whatever it is that's allowing us to take them on? Again, m massively important. Those things that make us feel that we're supported, that there's a, a something behind us. Um, and that it gets through. Yes, well, um, that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, all of those <laughs> three—you know, the, the the emotional, intellectual, and material—all count in this. Um, in, in terms of keeping that morale up and that determination, um, you, you know, that that determination, and, and of course, we've we've still got. I think we're still in the period of mud for the next two or three weeks. Um, when it's almost impossible to move off road in Ukraine because you're straight into mud, even for tanks. And I know people find that difficult to believe, but a tank can bog in very, very quickly, even with its amazing tracks. Um, and again, I, that, that shows a sort of this belief that the military system is um, inherently robust. Um, and and the and, and slightly damp earth um, couldn't possibly stop something that is meant to, you know is designed to cross it. Um, yeah, I, I <laughs> ground. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it's it's historical. You know, the the I, I forgot that there's a Russian name for it, isn't it? The, the 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 actual term for when the mud season. Rasputer, I think it is. Yes, something. Like, it's it? something like yeah. that. It, but the, you know, it happens twice. It's once in October and once in March. You, you know, it, um, and it just happens, and there's no way around it. 
it it's going to be um it's going to be interesting when when it when it's sort of interest is the wrong word i know but the the the, the post contact reports and studies into this will keep people going for a very long time Mm. Um, and I think the morale element will feature greatly in that, and especially the use of conscripted soldiers in modern modern age, you know, in the age of, of, of you know, social media. Um, I think that will, you know, people will, as they say, dine out on that for years. Um, it'll all come down to morale. I, I um, think it's going to be a critical aspect of this is how, and of course, all those things that you've just mentioned, communication devices, the internet, uh, mobile phones, WhatsApp, apparently Telegram is huge in, in yeah. this. Right. All of those are enablers for morale. All of those, all of those ways of communicating. You know, going back to Slim, he, he knew that you used every means of getting messages across. Now, for him, that was him going out and visiting units. There was also, there was a command area newspaper. There was information rooms in every unit, wherever possible. There was somewhere where soldiers could go and see what the situation was, both locally and internationally. You know, it was important to communicate. All of these modern things are tools for communication and they can be used for morale purposes. You know. Um, and it would seem from where we're standing that Ukraine is winning that battle right now. Yeah, just no denying that. Um, I, I think that's a good, that, that's a very good point on which to to end. Okay. Yeah. To, to today's session, um, Neil, thank you so much for joining us in the lounge. Um, sharing your experience because this is what you do for your day job yeah uh, <laughs> so and it's been very kind of you to sort of take a break from that because i know you are busy at the moment um but you've raised something that very few people talk about and thank you for doing that here are here with us at uh, the glorious 100 404th <laughs> i don't think anyone's actually made the connection about the 404th we'll see if they do as it's, it's page 404 i'm <laughs> Yeah. Not found. Yes, the Essence <laughs> Lounge is not found. Uh, no, Ben, as ever, it's been it's been a pleasure. I can wax lyrical on this particular topic on about morale and particularly about Slim, but you know he he is someone who is under underreported, I think. Um, yeah. And it, as I say, his book Defeat into Victory, um, it's still available. Pan military classics, he says, closing his copy now. Um, it's in front of me. <clears throat> it's a, it's an absolute textbook on leadership, I and mean, it goes way beyond, by the way, um, just these elements of morale. There's comment on logistics, on how to plan things, on all sorts of different areas of leadership and management. It's an absolute classic. But thank you very much, Ben. Not at all. And, th and like I say, um, Neil, thanks, thanks for joining us today. Listeners, uh, wherever you are, do take care. Um, thank you for joining us. I hope you found this useful. Uh, I'm sure Neil will be back uh, in the very near future. Um, so it, it really is up to me now just to say 
wherever you are in the world, take care. Uh, stay safe. Stay bad. And we'll I'm sure we'll speak very soon. Uh, from me, it's TTFN. And f goodbye from me as well. Thanks, everyone. Cheerio. So. Thank you.